This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. For more than a decade, the military health system has performed superbly in providing combat casualty care and life-saving treatments, achieving historic outcomes in saving lives and preventing injuries and illnesses. Lessons from 14 years of battlefield medicine, along with transformative changes in the practice of medicine in the United States, require new approaches to how MHS ensures medical readiness and how to best meet the expectations of its beneficiaries. Over the last few years, the military health system has pursued a balanced, comprehensive package of reforms that are directly aligned with and address each element of its quadruple aim. Those initiatives seek to improve readiness, improve health, improve care, and lower costs. How has military medicine been transformed? What is DOD doing to strengthen military medicine's global health engagement? and what has been done to reform the military health system. We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Dr. Jonathan Woodson, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs within the U.S. Department of Defense. Dr. Woodson, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting us. So uh, what is the mission of the military health system, MHS, and how has that mission evolved to date? Well, that's a great question. Um, uh, We really have uh, several uh, broad missions, but if you had to encapsulate it in a single um, sort of statement, it would be about to uh, support the defense of this nation and support the military services by the provision of excellent care in the operational and garrison environments. Now, having said that, though, there are several submissions that, uh, that people need to be aware of because we're a complex organization. So our job, of course, is to operate hospitals and uh, clinics, uh, as noted before, in the operational environment, that is, in theaters of war where troops are deployed, uh, but also in garrison to support uh, the health of the force and the health of the family members and retirees of the military services. So we have some 55 hospitals, over 400 clinics uh, worldwide uh, in which we deliver care. So we are an integrated uh, healthcare system. The second mission is that of uh, medical education. So we have to prepare providers and talented medical providers and uh, to go and 
harm's way to provide care. Um, and as a result, uh, we uh, train over 23,000 medical skill uh, providers every every year. That's enlisted uh, skill providers at our medical education and training uh, complex down in uh, San Antonio, Texas. And these are pharmacy techs, medics, uh, x-ray techs, uh, you name it, all of the folks that help support uh, medical care. In addition, uh, of course, uh, we have Uniform Services University where we uh, train uh, doctors, uh, but also have graduate programs in nursing and dental and uh, medical health administration, um, as well as public health, uh, because that's an important uh, part of our mission. And we have some 217 graduate medical education programs. So training uh, doctors in specialties like surgery and radiology uh, and internal medicine and family medicine uh, and many other specialties. So uh, that's the second part of our mission, which is uh, education. The third, of course, is research and development. We have a a vast portfolio of uh, combat-related research and development, uh, but we do uh, research in other areas that are relevant, like cancer, and uh, we contribute to, of course, the advances in medicine um, uh, more broadly uh, as well. We also run the TRICARE uh, Health Benefit, uh, and it's important to note for uh, the listeners that TRICARE really is uh, a defined health benefit that acts much like an entitlement program but doesn't operate like a a traditional insurance uh, product. And then one of the other things, of course, uh, that we do is that – because of the nature of our work, we're involved in uh, global health engagement uh, issues, uh, which I consider a new instrument of national power that needs to be coordinated with other U.S. government agencies and, of course, uh, in support of development of stable health systems uh, in uh, many countries, uh, so with host nation partners. And a lot can be said about that, but uh, you think Ebola, you think Zika, you think even uh, HIV and uh, PEPFAR uh, We're involved in all of these kinds of activities. So indeed, we have many missions, but uh, summed up, it is to support the national defense and the military services by provision of uh, care and keeping the troops healthy. So it's such an important role or missions that you have in your portfolio. I get a sense of how operationally MHS is organized. More importantly, how have you sort of reshaped the way health affairs and MHS are organized? during your tenure? Well, again, an excellent question. So, you know, one of the uh, truisms of life is that if you're not evolving, you're becoming extinct. And so um, if you we were to look back a number of decades, four uh, decades ago, when we were in the Cold War um, and we were thinking about million-man armies perhaps going to Europe to the Folder Gap, uh, uh, we could organize very clearly in terms of corps, divisions, and uh, we could have uh, very heavy medical systems like uh, combat support hospitals follow these corps and divisions and support medical care. Today, that's different. Uh, So if you look at the last 10 to 15 years that we've been in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and now um, in many areas of the world, uh, we have uh, uh, downsized our forward footprint and invested heavily in uh, uh, technology to uh, provide sophisticated care as we move uh, casualties from the point of injury to definitive care and back to the United States very rapidly. So as whereas 
was uh, in Vietnam era, for example, it might have taken a month to six weeks to get a uh, casualty home as they were staged in Vietnam and then maybe Japan and then, and then back to the United States. In these conflicts, uh, the modern era, we're talking about moving a casualty back to the United States in maybe 72 hours, 96 hours, um, as they're staged through Germany. This has required um, a different organization for care. Um, it's required the establishment of a joint trauma system uh, to look at um, uh, everything uh, from what training and skills the medic needs to what that you need to put on those tactical helicopters that pick up uh, casualties uh, to um, care at uh, forward surgical teams and care at what we call roll threes, which uh, are uh, more definitive care surgical hospitals uh, to in-flight uh, care. So one of the major advances in terms of medical care in uh, these recent conflicts is our critical care air medical capability, which allows us to essentially have flying ICUs. Um, and this has been advanced uh, tremendously. Uh, tremendously. So we've even flown individuals with severe lung disease on extracorporeal membrane oxygenators. Uh, uh, that's a fancy term for being able to oxygenate the blood um, outside of the body because the lungs are not working. Uh, I just use that as an example for the sophistication and for people who are not familiar with this, uh, um, you know, as you go up in altitude, oxygen gets thin. And so the complicated uh, algorithms, uh, uh, the care becomes more complicated at altitude. Uh, but we can do this and uh, we can do this uh, well. The men and women of the military health system perform uh, um, in excellent fashion. But it, it has required us to evolve. Uh, and so the bottom line is we've become more joint and uh, we have uh, developed a focus on enterprise management. So just to get a sense of, of your role as the principal advisor on health uh, for the uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, what what is exactly your specific responsibilities and duties as Assistant Secretary for Defense for Health Affairs? Well, uh, it is quite broad, but um, I, I like to say my job is to make sure that nothing's lost in translation. So I'm the final common pathway within the Department of Defense between uh, a medical system uh, where uh, there are a lot of technical aspects to it, and you need to understand healthcare delivery, you need to understand professional development, you need to understand healthcare organization to get the outcomes you want. And the higher echelons of the, uh, the Department of Defense, where they're concerned about things like uh, national security strategy, national military strategy, national defense strategy, uh, finance and policy and politics. And so my job is to make sure nothing's lost in translation. Translation from, you know, those financial policy, politics and strategy issues down to how, in fact, uh, we will deliver care uh, depending on the changing national security strategy. And um, the example today, again, is uh, I talked about the Million Man Army before. Now we're talking about a, a number of disaggregated operations around the world because of non-state actors. And as a result, we still have to deliver the standard of care anywhere men and women go in harm's way, even if they're operating in small groups. 
Likewise, my job is to prevent uh, loss in translation in terms of the needs of the medical community to do their job, the resources they need to do their job, um, in this highly uh, medical, technological environment. I need to translate that up to the senior policymakers so that they know what kind of resources uh, to provide. In addition, my job is also to uh, work in the interagency environment. So I'm the uh, pathway to uh, synchronize health-related activities across across the interagency environment. So we work with um, USAID, Health and Human Services, State Department, the White House on a number of initiatives. Uh, uh, we're recently involved in the President's Initiative on uh, Precision Medicine, the Cancer Moonshot, the Health of the Forest, uh, the, the Interagency Task Force on uh, Mental Health and Support to to families. So the job is quite broad. It has an external component, an internal component, but it's about not losing anything in translation. So, uh, you know, as you close your tenure as Assistant Secretary for Health Affairs, uh, what are some of the top challenges you have faced and, and how have you sought to address those challenges? So uh, that's, uh, again, an excellent question. Uh, so first of all, I, I, I just need to make the comment that this is uh, probably will be the best job I've ever had. Uh, it comes with its challenges, which we'll uh, talk about in a, in a second. But I'm very honored and privileged that the um, the president uh, nominated and appointed me. And uh, I will carry great memories uh, forward in life. Uh, and I thank the men and women of the military health system uh, for the tremendous job they do every day. But the real issue about this job, uh, and particularly at this time in history, I entered the job, remember, um, as we were really in the height of the wars. Uh, we were still in both Iraq and Afghanistan with substantial troop uh, deployments. And um, I was uh, entering this job where we needed to deal with those real issues and the injuries that were being generated uh, from those uh, conflicts and also pivoting to the future to make sure that we created a military health system that would be responsive in the future. So a couple of things. We needed to address uh, signature injuries of the war and make sure that we had a great strategy to try and make ill and injured service members whole uh, by providing great care, but coordinated care, great rehabilitation, and making sure that we had a strategy for a continuum of care as they transitioned out of the service and into communities around uh, the United States. But at the same time, with a budget uh, at that time, which was about $54 billion, I needed to develop a strategy that put the military health system on a sustainable footing, uh, meaning that if you looked at what our costs were, we were then uh, 10% of the base budget of the uh, Department of Defense um, at a time when the Budget Control Act came in. And so the top line was capped. If we continued to accelerate in cost uh, and we're a must-pay bill, we would eat up the capability to uh, train, man, equip, and modernize the rest of the force because of, of our costs. As a result, um, I had to develop uh, a strategy to 
to ensure that uh, we were using every dollar efficiently and that uh, we could reduce our cost over time. And this gets into what was my first strategic line of effort, which was to bring in enterprise management. And as a result, uh, we uh, established the Defense Health Agency to assume responsibility for all of the common uh, business activities uh, and set uh, common standards uh, for the military health system. Heretofore, of course, there had been a separate Army, Navy, and Air Force uh, um, sort of administrative uh, system, and um, that uh, has resulted in some uh, duplication. So the whole idea was to create uh, economies of scale. Uh, The Defense Health Agency in its first two years has saved over $700 million, and I think it's going to be the platform on which uh, each of the individual services, again, can continue to achieve excellence, but we can be good stewards of the taxpayers' dollars. So I was wondering, you know, uh, along with those challenges, uh, during your tenure, you probably have had a number of surprises. Um, So what has surprised you most? Well, uh, one of the things that uh, uh, surprised me, although uh, uh, I I guess I knew a little bit about it, but it it was... uh, how can, when you get into trenches and you have to deal with it, it becomes a little bit uh, more real to you. And that is uh, the um, compartmentalization and somewhat the bureaucracy of uh, uh, the building. Uh, one of the things that I had to uh, remember and appreciate is that the mission of the Department of the Defense is to defend this nation. Uh, and as a result, the senior leaders are a talented group of individuals, but they must concentrate on those real-world issues uh, such as ISIL and defense strategy, and they've got very little bandwidth uh, for understanding and being able to deal with um, you know, substantive medical changes. So what I needed to do was make sure that, in fact, I uh, developed the appropriate strategies, that I vetted those strategies, and then I presented the solution solutions to them because they didn't have much time, uh, I think, for discussing. I think the other thing is that I'm a guy who likes to make progress uh, very rapidly, um, and it's important to get buy-in and collaboration, uh, and you usually want to work from uh, a basis of consensus, broad consensus, but sometimes when you have to move the ball, um, you have to um, set out a direction and you have to create the vision and make sure that people are motivated to um, the, the, to that goal and bring along the consensus later, <laughs> if, if you will, as people see the value and merit of, of, the, of the change. Um, so uh, it's a complex environment uh, in which you've got to be able to take uh, bold action and maybe ruffle a few feathers, uh, challenge some of the conventional wisdom, uh, challenge some of the conventional way of doing business in order to get results. And, you know, that's a great uh, segue into your leadership style and uh, some of the leadership lessons. I was wondering, you know, as a surgeon, a soldier and teacher, a public servant, um, what core leadership lessons would you share with us? And more importantly, who has inspired your leadership approach? Uh, Well, first of all, I would say that one of the core leadership lessons is uh, be a servant leader. And the reason being is that if it ever becomes about you, you're going to fail. 
And so you, your job is to uh, equip the people uh, you need to serve with the support systems and resources to do their job. So I always say that leaders in a complex organization need to, in fact, give um, the organization and the subordinates three things. First is the guidance. That includes the vision and uh, what you expect at the end state, what optimal looks like. Uh, you need to ensure that they understand uh, the priorities. Uh, you need to ensure that they understand the ethical, moral uh, framework in which you uh, want to conduct business and how you expect business to, to, to be conducted. Very important. The second issue is you've got to uh, help them uh, design and create the organization to get the results uh, that you need. In other words, it's the Deming principle. I don't know if you're familiar with Edward Deming, the guru of uh, process improvement. He said every organization is perfectly designed to get the results they get. So if you get bad results, you have to look at the organizational structure. And so your job as a leader is to help uh, design the organization to get the results that you you really want, to create the agility, the flexibility, uh, and uh, discipline in the system so that everybody uh, can use their talents uh, uh, to the greatest uh, potential. And then the third piece is to give them the resources, whether it's human resources or fiscal resources, to go do the job. And once you've done that, you turn them loose uh, because you've got a talented pool. Your job is not to suppress them, but is to turn them loose so that they uh, can use their innovative talents and their intellect uh, to drive the organization uh, to new heights. So that's very important. Now, I just want to get back Back to one other issue about the issue of uh, the guidance and this moral and ethical framework. As a leader, you got to understand your value system, and it's something you've got to reflect on over the course of your career and your development and ensure that it's incorporated in your DNA and you live it and you breathe it every day and that people um, uh, who come into your presence understand uh, where you're coming from even when you don't speak the words. Uh, you know, in the military, each service develops value. I grew up in the Army, so I uh, often talk about Army's va Army values, but the, the issue is it's the same for the other services. Uh, and it, it's things like loyalty. It's things like duty. It's things like respect in the broadest sense for people, their ideas, uh, genders, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, it is about selfless service. And again, part of that is being a servant leader. It is about honor. It is about integrity. And most importantly, and the most difficult one I think uh, uh, leaders often have trouble with uh, is personal courage. It's about standing up and being willing to challenge, again, the conventional wisdom, challenge uh, folks uh, and make sure that uh, they understand uh, uh, why they need to change and uh, even uh, having the courage to lead up. Sometimes part of your job, not infrequently part of your job, is to lead up, to ensure that despite somebody who has higher and greater authority to you, uh, really understands uh, the situation and don't be afraid to bring them bad news. Bring them solutions also, but you can't be afraid to bring them bad news. How has the military health system fully embraced an enterprise management approach to meeting its missions? I will ask Dr. Jonathan Woodson, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The 
latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. What has the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, done to transform its IT infrastructure? How has the FCC Chief Information Officer cultivated a network of change agents? What is the FCC doing to cultivate a culture of risk-taking and experimentation? Join host Michael J. Keegan as he explores these questions and so much more with David Bray, Chief Information Officer, the Federal Communications Commission, next week on the Business of Government Hour. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Jonathan Woodson, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs within the U.S. Department of Defense. So, you know, in the last few years, you, you have uh, pursued a multi-year plan for the um, modernization of military medicine uh, in the service. As your tenure ends at DOD, uh, what were your key priorities, say, over the last couple of years, and how did they relate to the six strategic uh, lines of effort that you had been pursuing and ultimately fulfill MHS's quadruple aim? Absolutely. Uh, that uh, That's great. So um, the first uh, line of effort, again, was to modernize uh, the MHS management with an enterprise focus for all the reasons I spoke about before. And um, there were several actions. Uh, there were many actions, but several that were important. So it was about establishing the Defense Health Agency uh, to create con- economies of scale and efficiency. But it was also about ensuring that we had a strategy for delivering care in what we called our multi-service markets, which would allow us to optimize the use of the military treatment facilities as service points, but also optimize what uh, we would pay for in the uh, purchase care market uh, when it wasn't available in the military treatment uh, uh, facilities. And this required a whole reorganization to integrate uh, the services and the administrative uh, process. But it was also about developing a common cost accounting system so that we could follow where the money went more easily and made sure that that uh, we were spending every dollar on what were priority issues and uh, we weren't losing any money to uh, inefficiency. It was about uh, new leader development. So leaders in the 21st century need new capabilities. When I talk on this subject, I talk about the fact that leaders in the 21st century uh, need to have skills to operate in this uh, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world. Uh, It's an acronym called VUCA. We learned when we were back at the War College, uh, leaders really need to learn how to uh, build teams uh, to craft solutions to uh, complex uh, uh, problems. It was about acquiring new business tools that would allow our providers and our uh, folks in the MHS to do a better job. So we've just uh, um, invested in a new electronic health record uh, that will advance uh, our ability to to, uh, deliver uh, care. So it was about enterprise management. The second, of course, was about defining uh, the 21st century medical capabilities that were 
necessary. We talked about four decades ago, a million-man army. We talked about the fact that nowadays we're talking about a lot of disaggregated operations. The capabilities that are required uh, today and going forward into the future will be vastly different than we needed uh, four decades ago. Remember this, that the American people and the American leadership expect us to deliver the standard of care or above the standard of care anywhere in the world uh, servicemen and women go in harm's way. And as a result, we've got to meet that need and meet it with agility, uh, flexibility, um, and economy and scalability. Uh, so the third was about uh, creating a new strategy for the force management. So today, we have many more subspecialists. We have many more critical specialties. And so you need to develop a human capital program uh, that allows you to uh, assess, retain, recruit, and maintain a broad array of specialties. Uh, and that no, no longer can be done in isolation uh, within, I think, the independent services in a way that it was done years ago when a doc was a doc and a nurse was a nurse. Uh, we needed to look at the balance of the active component and the reserve component. Uh, the fourth line of effort was about uh, defining and uh, expanding and investing in our strategic partners. So as good as the military health system is, we can't do it all. And so we need to have partnerships with academic health centers, with the Veterans Administration, uh, with industry, with other research uh, and development concerns. And so it was about defining those strategic partnerships, uh, very important, to make us strong as we went forward in the future. The fifth was about reforming TRICARE. So TRICARE actually is a very robust program, a defined health benefit, as I said before, but it needed to be modernized in its administrative process to make it better for the beneficiaries so that they felt good about it, clearly. And then the last was about defining our requirements and competencies in global health engagement, uh, which again, as I said, is a new instrument of national power. So how could we organize to ensure that uh, we could serve uh, the secretary's needs and the, and the chairman? needs uh, better um, to use this tool as a real prominent uh, part of their toolkit as they develop the national military, national defense strategy and advise the president uh, as to what uh, we were capable of. And again, Ebola is one of those issues, um, again, capacity building, health engagement. And I would remind you that in today's world, there are other countries um, who are investing heavily in this. So China is raising their hand and, and sending medical support to various areas. Cuba has been doing that for a while. And we need to be thinking about how we leverage uh, our military health system in coordination with other U.S. government agencies uh, to effectively uh, utilize this instrument of soft power for good around the world. I want to drill down a little bit into the your pursuit of the enterprise management approach. And I, I kind of had a question. You, you've already kind of given me a sense of what it is. And what prompted it, 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 your pursuit of it uh, was some factors around uh, just the budget realities of the world. But, but where I want to go with this is what is an enterprise management approach and how is the defense health agency that you established, that you helped create, how is that a manifestation of that approach in action? Well, you know, uh, I always say don't never let a good crisis go un unutilized. So in 2008, 2009, uh, when I first encountered Secretary Gates, um, 
He was very concerned about the escalating cost of the military health system. And uh, you may remember there was a famous quote that it was eating our lunch, uh, basically. And that reflected the issue of this uh, growing cost of the military health system, again, a must-pay bill against the uh, top-line cap of the uh, Department of Defense and this tension that was being created against this must-pay bill for the military health system uh, and eating up resources train, man, equip, and modernize uh, the rest of the force. Uh, so it was a real challenge. And at that time, of course, healthcare inflation uh, was uh, skyrocketing. We had we were assessing on active duty more troops, uh, which meant more beneficiaries. And so there were many factors that were feeding into um, the rising costs. And as a result, we had 54 plus billions of dollars that were being invested in the military health system. But as I came into this job, I looked around and I said, well, costs are one thing, but we also need to look at outcomes. Uh, we need to understand that we need to organize to effect to ensure that uh, we remain the best health system in the world, bar, bar none, that our outcomes uh, are great. And so barring on experience from the civilian sector, I knew that we needed to reorganize so that we decrease variability uh, around the health system, that we were all operating from the highest standards and platforms and service delivery strategies. Uh, and so this is where you get into the Defense Health Agency, which is a, a joint uh, agency that, in fact, uh, establishes uh, those standards, acquires uh, the business tools, allows us to create performance improvement dashboards that uh, senior leaders can monitor, which can drill down to the individual military treatment facilities so that we have a common site picture. We know to where to put resources. We know where there are problems, and we can correct those uh, problems. Uh, so this is enterprise management. And this is just one piece of it. Again, uh, when you get into, uh, let's think, things like health IT, health in information technology, which has been very costly, not only for us, but every health center. They've been pouring billions of dollars in it. The real issue is how do you um, create uh, economies of scale, but actually get the most out of that investment uh, that you can possibly get in terms of improving uh, healthcare uh, strategy, uh, healthcare delivery, and healthcare outcomes. And so you just can go on down the line, facilities, contracts, pharmacy. There are just many things that uh, we're crying for an enterprise approach to uh, management to improve outcomes and economies of scale. So, like when you when you think of the the success of of DHA, uh, you know, and and maybe perhaps you've alluded to them, but maybe you might want to identify some of the things since it's been fully operational since I think 2015. If there's anything that you want to highlight about some of its successes, but also, you know, I, I, just as you think back, is there anything that could have been done differently uh, that maybe you would have done differently in establishing it? So, uh, you know, there's always uh, um, things you might have wanted to do differently. The Defense Health Agency is, uh, it should be noted, is a work in progress. So it, it reached full operating capability on 1 October 2015. Um, and so it's about two and a half years old um, in terms of its existence. And there still are a lot of things we need to do to um, be, create a, even a more agile 
and efficient system. So one of the things, of course, is that if you look at the 10 shared services that originally came in, like health IT and pharmacy and facilities, uh, contracts, uh, et cetera, um, is that we were, uh, in fact, uh, taking on these functions from all of the military services. And as a result, we had duplications in personnel. And so we need to attrit that down to a um, more efficient uh, manpower state, uh, uh, manning document. So it's a work in progress, and I see a great future for the Defense Health Agency in support of the services to allow them to do um, even a greater job uh, in in the future. Yeah, so actually it's a great segue into uh, your efforts to ensure uh, the uh, well, actually the future needs, that's what I wanted to get at, and capabilities of the MHS uh, enterprise. Uh, you, you pursued a review, I believe, of, of what is going to be needed in the future in terms of uh, uh, resources and personnel and skills. Uh, what insights have been drawn from that review, and how have those insights been put into practice? So, again, as we pivot to the future, what we're recognizing, again, is that uh, we need greater uh, capability at the point of injury. Uh, We need to invest in lightweight technology. We need to invest in interoperability of personnel and equipment. So, again, historically, when organized uh, by Army, Navy, Air Force, uh, you get uh, different designs. You get different acquisition of equipment. And then suddenly you get a situation like uh, we've had in Afghanistan. And certainly, as we're seeing today, uh, where you need to put teams together quickly from the three services and and you don't have quite the matchup. What we've got to do going forward is uh, ensure that we've got interoperability of uh, the services, common training platforms, common equipment acquisition, common understanding of how to operate in the operational environment with agility and uh, and flexibility so that we can put the teams together uh, wherever they might be needed to serve the defense uh, uh, of this nation. So that's where we're going as, as we move uh, forward. And this does not necessarily take away uh, what is unique to the services. So I always say about 85 to 90 percent of what the services do is alike. As a surgeon, the outcome I want from the bypass I do, the resources brought to doing that bypass, the standards brought to the, doing that bypass uh, should be the same no matter whether I'm wearing an Army uniform, a Navy uniform, or an Air Force uniform. And I use that as a simple example to say that across medical care, there is a lot that is alike. But there are some things that the services need to hold on to that are unique, and we don't want to destroy what they do uh, very, very well, such as undersea medicine for the Navy, aerial platforms for the Air Force, and some land-based projection of medical force uh, for the Army. We want them to begin uh, to continue to innovate in those uh, specialty areas, but at the same time, uh, we need to work from this platform of uh, jointness uh, and interoperability so that uh, we're flexible, efficient, scalable, and we can operate anywhere around the world, whether it's in a fixed facility or it's in uh, an operational environment like a forward surgical team or a role three uh, hospital in theater. So I was wondering, you, what programs have you established or, or that are, are in place to ensure the clinical skills of, uh, of uh, the folks in the military medicine are actually maximized? Uh, again, great question. So in American medicine writ large, uh, we've been challenged with uh, this concept of maintenance of competency as we've had the, the ingrowth of subspecialization. 
And in fact, if you take uh, a specialty like general surgery, where in fact there's been more minimally invasive surgery, one of the issues we've had to deal with is the erosion of some broad surgical skills that are required when we go into combat. So how to do open surgery, how to do that damage control surgery, stop that bleeding. Because in conventional training now, it's so highly specialized, minimally invasive, and compartmentalized that uh, many of the trainees are coming out with fewer broad skills. What we've done is actually undertake an analysis of this uh, so that we can identify what the gap is. And so uh, now that we understand what the gaps are, uh, we can develop a disciplined uh, curriculum and training strategy to close that gap. So, for example, investment in sophisticated simulation platforms to uh, create uh, skill uh, skills uh, and maintain skills is really an important part of our program. But in addition, understanding again to uh, get back to that fourth strategic line of effort, which is partnerships, it is about establishing and containing and, and maintaining relationships with like the Ryder Institute in Florida, where we can send teams, uh, trauma teams, uh, to get real world experience uh, periodically to maintain uh, their competency or pre-deployment uh, uh, training. Uh, it is about partnering with the American College of Surgeons to um, develop standards around uh, skill development and curriculum to enhance uh, skills, uh, maintain skills of uh, surgeons. It is about partnering with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement uh, to um, get and design important uh, healthcare delivery systems to drive better outcomes. So it requires, uh, um, from the analysis, it has required us to develop uh, different strategies that uh, complement and work with those uh, six strategic lines of effort. So you, you have mentioned, Dr. Woodson, the um, the new uh, electronic health record. And, and it's probably one of the most important advances uh, to be introduced in MHS in 2016. And I believe it's called MHS Genesis, right? Right. Yeah. Would you tell us more about this effort and perhaps you could highlight the roadmap going forward? Uh, great question. And again, it needs to be taken in context. So electronic health records uh, have been expanding in American medicine uh, uh, for some time, uh, really with the Affordable Care Act and the pumping of money into the American market to incentivize the use of electronic health records. We've seen a marked expansion of uh, uh, digital platforms uh, for archiving and for sharing information. The one issue with electronic health records until very recently has been its interoperability, meaning the ability to actually share that digital information for the purpose of care, uh, coordinating care uh, with many entities. Uh, the electronic health records to date had been highly compartmentalized and highly customized to a single hospital or group practice, and the ability to share that digital information has been relatively small. With our uh, strategy for acquiring the electronic health record, we actually set out to push the envelope on interoperability to uh, ensure that we could share information with health information exchanges because, in fact, uh, 70% of our dollars, particularly if you look at the 
TRICARE program is spent in the purchase care sector, the the economy, uh, uh, basically. And we needed to be able to get information back on our beneficiaries to ensure that we were, uh, they were healthy and they were getting the right care and they, they were getting quality care and we could um, uh, clearly define the health of the force. So our acquisition, uh, MHS Genesis, really pushes the envelope on interoperability. But more importantly, it is uh, sophisticated clinical and business tool that can aggregate information in uh, various databases to give uh, the provider on one end um, the information they need at the point of service, at the point of care, to enhance uh, their ability to deliver care and therefore their ability to drive outcomes. As well as on the other end, it allows us to aggregate information to better understand how we need to adjust systems to drive population health or explore uh, new avenues for serving uh, different cohorts of patients with specialized uh, issues. It allows us uh, to coordinate better across the continuum and the transition of care as well. Uh, so we're looking for the, uh, the rollout of this uh, electronic health record to really advance our uh, strategy uh, for care and, of course, uh, putting us, uh, again, keeping us as one of the top uh, healthcare delivery systems in the world. What is DOD doing to strengthen military medicine's global health engagement. I will explore this question and much more with Dr. Jonathan Woodson, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Jonathan Woodson, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs within the U.S. Department of Defense. So, uh, Dr. Woodson, would you elaborate on the historic outcomes derived from the success of the joint trauma system over the last 15 years? Um, how does military medicine build on these successes, sustain this excellence, and most of all, institutionalize the lessons learned. Uh, so one of the clear issues about getting superior outcomes in trauma care has to be that you have to build a system. It's not about individuals, the surgeon or the medic or the nurse. It's about how they work together across time and space um, that is, in fact, focused on um, the optimal outcomes, uh, saving lives, uh, basically. We knew from 
uh, experience in the civilian sector at the beginning of the war that cities were beginning to organize these trauma systems to uh, include uh, the emergency medical systems and the hospitals to better optimize the flow of patients, the outcomes, and to look at metrics to really define uh, that outcomes were improving. At the beginning of the war, um, there were a number of uh, folks who got together and said, we need to do this, particularly since we were moving patients more rapidly through the continuum of care, from the point of injury to resuscitative centers in theater to launch stool to the United States. So the joint trauma system uh, really represents a synchronized set of capabilities uh, from the point of injury through uh, the almost the rehabilitative uh, process that uh, connects all of the pieces in a way that um, improves outcomes. And in fact, uh, you may know that certainly an individual who uh, reaches the first echelon of care, who's injured on a battlefield today and reaches the first echelon of care, has an excess of uh, 93% chance of uh, surviving and probably greater than 95, as the new data would suggest. Uh, That means that uh, we understand uh, what the medics are doing, uh, what they need to be trained on. We know what the tactical helicopters uh, need to have in terms of equipment and uh, skill sets of uh, uh, the medics on board. We know now what the forward surgical teams need to do and what they uh, should not be doing. So it's about damage control surgery. It's about immediate resuscitation and then moving them on to the roll three hospitals where more definitive care is. But it's also about then not letting the individual languish there, but then transporting them with critical care aeromedical capability to launch and then on to home to definitive centers. So the joint trauma system is just that, a system that allows you to mine data in almost real time to improve the system. Now, your question also asked how we're institutionalizing that. And so uh, we are uh, defining a strategy with the joint staff uh, to even analyze the joint trauma system uh, further, uh, looking forward to the future to see what new capabilities we need to put in place. But it is now clearly institutionalized in the the joint system um, uh, with uh, collaboration of the DHA and the services and will be part of our uh, ongoing strategy to deliver care in any future missions. So, uh, Doctor, during your tenure, you mentioned um, you have made a specific effort of focusing on strengthening military medicine's uh, global health engagement. And I'd like to focus a little bit more on that. And, And could you tell us specifically what it entails this effort as, as a, I think, as a tool of soft power, maybe smart power. Uh, and more particularly, perhaps you could highlight some of the things you're most proud of in this area. Yes. Yeah, so, so global health engagement um, is uh, this emerging concept that uh, we can, through Uh, health diplomacy, through health engagement around the world, build bridges, um, help create the elements of uh, stable societies, uh, because when uh, societies and countries invest in health, that's really a marker that they are more stable. It's a, it's a reflection of their value system, a, vac- a, respe- a reflection of their priorities. It's a reflection of investing in their people. Uh, it's a reflection of, uh, in fact, the, that they're considering the future of their people when um, they invest in health. And global health engagement in con- 
concept is that if you uh, invest engagement around the world, uh, you actually elevate the reputation of uh, uh, America um, in uh, helping individual nations and regions achieve uh, their health goal. Oh, by the way, you also help protect America because when you build public health capacity so that they can prevent, detect, and respond to disease outbreak, um, you don't get a situation where you get Ebola um, and then people get on planes and it's on the shores of America. So uh, there is a national security element to this, but it is about the use of this uh, soft power to build bridges. Uh, so it's good uh, diplomacy. Um, it's good uh, for security, um, and it is a way, I believe, of helping to lessen the potential for kinetic operations uh, because you have built these uh, these bridges. Now, I want to emphasize that the U.S. military doesn't do this alone. It actually um, is a part player in the whole of U.S. government. And in fact, there may be other agencies that um, uh, have and should take the lead, whether it's state USAID or Health and Human Services. Uh, but we have uh, very strong assets um, and uh, capabilities that we bring uh, to this endeavor. Uh, and so um, we needed to uh, recognize our responsibilities in this area. We needed to define our requirements. We needed to create a cadre of uh, individuals who could support uh, these interactions with the right competencies. And then we needed to provide uh, a forum for academic exploration to say, uh, what is it we should be doing? How is it we should be doing it? Uh, and what we, should we look forward in the future? So we've established at the Uniformed Services uh, University uh, a global health uh, engagement department, uh, which uh, brings in the uh, resources of the Army, Navy, uh, and Air Force. Uh, we've developed within the Department of Defense uh, a global health engagement um, a council of uh, deputies to, to the assistant secretaries so that we can coordinate activities and have better situational awareness and therefore pro provide uh, better input to um, the secretary and chairman um, in terms of these matters. Uh, and um, it's uh, already shown the promise that uh, when you have issues pop up around the world, whether it's Zika or something else, uh, having this better coordination and situational awareness really does allow for processing of information better and uh, the uh, development of uh, input for strategy uh, a lot sooner. So I'd like to focus internally a little bit, and that is on medical readiness, a healthy and fit force. Uh, what, have, what are you doing in that area? Uh, what are some of the programs, some of the efforts you've pursued? And more particularly, how have you sort of used 21st century technology and tools to engage uh, a, a medical-ready and healthy and fit force? So, you know, one of our uh, uh, strategies or one of the, the things we tried to promote during my tenure was to move from a system of just healthcare, which is uh, providing treatments after you have established injuries or diseases, to a system of health, of promoting health, which was focusing on the population and all of those prevention issues that uh, prevent disease uh, and illness and, and injury. Um, and so what 
you need to do is encourage and enhance uh, uh, your public health strategy and platform. Um, and it takes on a whole different tone when you talk about health. Uh, uh, it takes on involvement of many more stakeholders and communities. Uh, so we uh, promoted and um, uh, supported the development of the Healthy Base Initiative, for example, which was uh, a, a pilot attempt at uh, looking at uh, four installations and doing holistic environmental scans of what was going on uh, in terms of promotion of health, of sort of everything from exercise areas to vending machines to vendors and what kind of food they were uh, offering uh, to leadership attitudes. You know, we found in some places, for example, that bases um, not consciously, perhaps, but by design, uh, would promote the use of uh, using your car from moving from one part of the base to the other because there weren't any sidewalks, for example. Uh, uh, so someone who wanted to go over to the shopping area and worked in one of the installation buildings would get in their car and and, walk, and drive the mile rather than walk the mile, uh, basically. Uh, simple things like that. Uh, when you do the environmental scans for nutrition, and you look at what's in the vending machines and what the fast food places were offering, uh, there was an opportunity for a lot of improvement and to use our buying power um, as uh, uh, sort of a forcing function to improve uh, menus and the like. So those are the kinds of things that we were investing in, as well as, of course, education of uh, the troops and um, how to uh, live healthier lives, support of families uh, in how to live healthier lives uh, as a, a family unit. As we close, what accomplishments are you most proud of during your tenure? What's next for you? Uh, so, uh, uh, again, I think my my proudest accomplishment was, again, being a servant leader uh, in support of uh, the 150,000 men and women of the military health system and giving them uh, a new uh, set of uh, strategies and organizational environment to succeed in the future. Um, and it's all the things that uh, we, we talked about. Um, uh, I think I have supported uh, the uh, Office of the Secretary of Defense uh, uh, well. Now, as I go uh, into the future um, uh, and back into private life, I'm heading back to um, uh, academic life. Uh, I'll be going back to Boston University, uh, where I will be establishing a new um, health systems innovation and policy institute there. Um, and uh, resuming clinical um, duties uh, and be a professor of uh, surgery, public health, and, uh, and practice. So. so, sir, I've had the pleasure of sort of bookending your career as assistant secretary. I had you on in the beginning of your tenure and now that you're in. And I, I just want to ask, what advice would you give someone who is thinking about a career in either medicine or public service or ideally both? So um, I think ideally both, uh, frankly. Uh, and so uh, uh, that's a great question. And I've always subscribed to the Jeffersonian uh, concept of democracy where people come from private life on to, into government service but go back to private life. I think that renews the blood of uh, not only um, you as a person but what you contribute to government uh, because uh, it's not about protecting your job in government. It's about serving. 
and then going back into private life. And then if you have the opportunity to serve again, uh, you do that. So uh, the advice I would give is uh, to young people is build your toolkit. Um, you'll never know when the call will come. Um, you'll need a broad set of skills, not only your medical skills, but uh, your ability to be a leader, to work in teams, uh, and to to understand how government runs, um, as complex as it is, to, to make improvements. But by all means, look forward to an opportunity to serve uh, in some public way. Well, Dr. Woodson, I want to thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule as you're wrapping up your time at, at DOD. But from one New York University alum to the other, I want to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you so much, and it's been a pleasure being here. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Dr. Jonathan Woodson, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs within the U.S. Department of Defense. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What has the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, done to transform its IT infrastructure? How has the FCC Chief Information Officer cultivated a network of change agents? What is the FCC doing to cultivate a culture of risk-taking and experimentation? Join host Michael J. Keegan as he explores these questions and so much more with David Bray, Chief Information Officer, the Federal Communications Commission, next week on the Business of Government Hour. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.